in the room, everybody tuning in online. And I want to welcome all of our Porch Live locations in particular tonight. Porch Live Scottsdale, Arizona, Porch Live Greater Lafayette, Indianapolis, and Porch Live Northwest Arkansas and North Houston. We are continuing this series, Scandals, and looking at some of the family members of Jesus, the Savior of the world. And tonight we're going to look at a guy that actually is so famous that people have depicted him in art. And one of the more famous pieces of art, let me show it to you right here because it'll tell you a little bit about our character. This is King David. And yes, we are keeping it modest as hottest and covering up. This was created by Michelangelo in 1501. You got to know King David is up in heaven like, Michelangelo, bro, why you put me on blast like that to the entire world? Showing myself up here. And he made this when he was 26 years old. Michelangelo. And it was one of the greatest, and still is, considered one of the greatest pieces of art of all time. It was 17 feet tall. It weighs six and a half tons. And every year, over a million people travel to Florence, Italy, in order to see it. And Michelangelo made it out of a single block of marble. And to this day, people would say it is the greatest statue of all time. It is a picture of perfection and artistry. But here's what is also true about that statue of David. Here, you can put it back up, Alex. There is almost zero to little chance that King David looked like this picture. In fact, we know that because Michelangelo said, yeah, I based it off of another guy who lived down the road. His name was Carl, but he had the face going on, and that's just what he thought of when he thought of King David. And this picture and picturesque and manicured and perfect statue of a chiseled, incredible specimen of a man was not just failing to capture what David actually looked like, it also fails to communicate who David actually was. Now, King David is the most associated person with Jesus in the Bible. In fact, in order to be the Messiah, you had to show that you were actually of the line of King David. He was an incredibly important person in the Jewish lineage, and he was also an incredibly flawed and broken person who God used in incredible ways. And you may not be familiar with that. You may have heard the story of David, and you're familiar with Goliath, and we think of him, he's some hero of the faith. But there are some parts of David's stories that Matthew, the disciple of Jesus, when he writes the Gospel of Matthew, he starts by going through the lineage of Jesus we've been walking through, and he wants to highlight, not the highlight reel of David's life, but the low light and lowest moment David would have on the planet. And in doing so, he very intentionally points us to the point of the gospel story he's about to write. So let me read it, and it'll make sense, and we'll camp out in particular where Matthew highlights. Matthew chapter one, as Matthew launches into the gospel of Jesus, says this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and then verse five, we're gonna pick up where we left off last week. Now Salmon was the father of Boaz, Boab, whose mother was Rahab, the prostitute. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of King David. Now, Matthew could have stopped right there. I mean, he he proved his point. All that his audience needed to know is check the box. He's related to King David. You can't be the Messiah unless you're related to King David. King David was so significant in the Jewish mind. Inside of the Bible, The only person who's talked about more than King David is 
Jesus. The number of chapters that are written about King David is 62. The next closest is Abraham at 14. And then Isaac at 11. Elijah. Elijah, most of you guys don't even know the story of Elijah. Don't have time to go into it. Elijah's one of two people who never died. He just went on a chariot and ascended up to heaven. He's got 10 chapters written about him. And King David has 62 chapters. 59 times he's brought up in the New Testament. He's the only person called twice a man after God's own heart. And Matthew could have stopped at King David, but he goes one step further and brings up the most destructive decision David ever made. He says this, and David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, if you're Matthew, think about that. And you're writing the genealogy of Jesus. And you could go any way you want. In that day and age, they rarely brought up women. They just had to include the male lineage inside of there. And he not only brings up a woman, he twists the knife, if you will, on who the woman who David had Solomon, King Solomon with, who she was. He doesn't even say her name. He says who her husband was. Why would Matthew do that? Because Matthew, over and over in the lineage, is pointing out, Jesus didn't just come for sinners. He came from sinners. The most picturesque, perfect person that you could think of in the Bible is at the end of the day, a broken, fallen person who just like you needs a savior to save them from themselves. And he's about to tell these first century new baby believers, new Christians, some Jewish listeners, how they are gonna relate to God no longer on how they behave or their relationship with God doesn't have to have anything to do with what they've done or what they do. But it is entirely based on what God has done. And so he brings up, you remember David? Yeah, yeah, the guy who had that relationship with Bathsheba. And I wanna walk through that relationship because inside of that story, we see some parallels to our own story, our own journey, our own experience in life. And we also see something very important about our God. So if you didn't grow up in church, I'm gonna give you a high level overview of the story of David. I'm gonna basically play the movie for the next 20 minutes. I'm gonna give you two takeaways. You'll get out of here in time to go hit the fire pits or whatever we have out the, outside. But I'm gonna play the movie of David's life. Hopefully we have some fire pits outside. Here's what happened. King David was born around 1,000 years before Jesus, 1,000 years BC. He was born into a very poor family. He was the youngest of eight kids. At the time, there was a king by the name of, anybody know? Saul. Saul. That's right, Saul. Saul was the king of Israel, and Saul was basically the Disney prince. He's a head taller than everybody else. He looks like Gaston, and he's, you know, the guy that everybody swoons over. True story, it says all the ladies are like, oh man, no one looks like Saul. And they watched, and Saul was that king. But God rejected Saul. And he tells Samuel, who's the prime minister of the nation, Saul's the first king, but he won't be the king for long. I have chosen another king. And Samuel says, okay, where's this other king? And God says, Samuel, I want you to go to the town of Bethlehem. And in the town of Bethlehem, there's a family and a father named Jesse. And he has sons, and one of those sons is the one that is to be anointed. So Samuel gets on his donkey or horse or whatever, shows up at Jesse's house, knocks on the door. Hey, I'm here to tell you that one of your sons is about to be king of Israel. So Jesse proud dad to be is going, all right, let me get all the boys together. And he lines them all up. 
And Samuel looks at the first son, and it says this. He looked at Eliab was his name. And Samuel, verse 6 of 1 Samuel chapter 16, when they arrived, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. And God nudges him and says, that's not him. So he's like, okay, well, not firstborn. You know, rule follower, it's probably a good thing. Let's go to the secondborn. He was secondborn. And God says, it's not him. He's going, all right, we'll move to the thirdborn, kind of middle child. I'm sure that, you know, caused some adversity. He grew through that. And on and on and on, down to seven sons. And each time, God says, it's not him. And then, in almost a comical way, Samuel is going, man, it's not any of these. And he asks Jesse what had to be a funny question and incredibly insulting to David. And he goes, do you have any other sons? And Jesse, father of the year, is going, I do have another son. That's right, yeah. Where, is, where did I put him? And he goes, he's out tending the sheep in the field. And it says this. Then Samuel asked, are these all the sons that you have? And Jesse replied, I do have the youngest, the youngest, but he's out in the fields watching sheep and goats. Send for him, Samuel said. We won't sit down until he arrives. So they sent, and Jesse went and got him. And he walks in, and David's all sunburned from the sun and sweaty from hanging with sheep and playing the harp. And he steps inside, and this teenage kid, God says, that's him. Verse 12, David was dark or ruddy and handsome, with beautiful eyes, and the Lord said, this is the one, anoint him. Samuel pours oil on his head, kind of an ancient indicator of God's anointing on somebody. And David, you know, is like, oh, that was weird, and runs back out to care for the sheep. Shortly, a little bit of time goes by, and David's most triumphal moment happens where David shows up, and everybody knows the story, especially his kids. We grow up learning about David, and there's this giant named Goliath, and this huge nine-foot-tall guy is tormenting the armies of God, and David, as a teenage kid, says, you don't talk to my God and my people like that, and he takes a slingshot that hits David square in the forehead, or hits Goliath square in the forehead, and Goliath dies. David becomes a hero, and eventually he's placed in the palace, and he's the king of Israel, from the pastor to the palace. And one day, he's in his 30s. He just started to reign at age 30. And he's sitting and he's looking in this palace. And David loved God. And he's looking out the window of his palace. And this is in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And he goes, man, I got this huge crib. And God is over there in a tent. We need to build a temple to the Lord. So he begins to go, how much money do I have? He's checking his wallet. How do we build a temple? And God sends a messenger to David that says, you're not going to build a temple. I'm going to build something through you. And he makes an unconditional promise to David. Here's what it says, 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I took you, David, from tending sheep in the pasture, and I selected you to be the leader of my people. I have been with you wherever you've gone. I've destroyed all your enemies before your eyes. David had incredible victories and success in military terms. And now I will make your fame. This is a promise that today we are evidence of. I will make you as famous as anyone who has ever lived on earth. Now, I don't know how much church background you have. My guess is you came to the room and you've at least heard the name of King David. And God fulfilled that promise. But there's a much more important promise that traces all the way to Jesus. Furthermore, 
The Lord says he will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings. When you die and are buried with your ancestors, one of your descendants, your own offspring, I will make his kingdom strong. He's the one who will build a house, a temple for my name. And I will secure his royal throne forever. My favor will not be taken from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from your sight. Talking about the former king. Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time. Your throne will be secure forever. So David is promised by God that I am going to place the eternal throne And eventually the savior of the world, the king of kings, will come through you. And he makes a covenant promise to David. Now David had a mountaintop moment with Goliath. And this is another mountaintop moment where God makes a huge promise to not just him, but to his children and their children and their children. And (laughs) shortly after that, David's life begins to unravel. Now let me tell you a little bit about David in terms of like his family structure, because it's important to understanding the incredible man this was that had incredible flaws. Here's, here's the family of King David. So David, when I think David, I think Jake Gyllenhaal feels fitting right now. And David was married to a girl named Michael. Apparently it was a girl named back then, and he married Michael. And when I think Michael, of course, you're gonna think T-Swift. And David had six other wives. He wasn't, God had not told him to do that. He didn't obey God. And so he ended up married to six other people, which let's just keep it all in the same family and assume that all of them look like T-Swift, just from different eras. (laughs) How much of a horror movie would this be? (laughs) If you were Jake Dylan on, you're married to seven Taylor Swifts. Okay, so anyways, Jake is married. And I'm kidding. That's gonna upset all the Swifties who are coming after me now. (laughs) He's married to... All of these different women and has a lot of dysfunction in his family as a result of it. One of the reasons God outlawed polygamy is because all of the different competition and insecurity and things that happened from having more than one wife and her child and my child and just the infighting that took place, as you would imagine, and it did. But all of this was not enough as David one day sees someone who says, I don't just want these women, I want her. And her is Bathsheba. And we're going to look more closely at her story. But Bathsheba, she's Israeli. Let's go with Gal Gadot. Okay? And David begins to have a relationship with Gal, despite the seven other women in his life. And it leads to the destruction of his family and his future. Here's the story. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring... When kings normally go out to war, King David did not. He sent Joab, the commander of the army, and the Israelite army to go fight the Ammonites. David was supposed to be at war. We're not told why he stayed home. He's still in his 30s. He's relatively young. And in the spring is when they would go off because in the winter, they couldn't go battle or couldn't attack and couldn't fight because the ground, either through snow and through mud, it would just, the wheels couldn't turn. So in the spring is when kings would go and the king would ride out to lead his army in battle and David decided, I'm not going to the battlefield. I'm gonna hang in the bedroom. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, which is a nap, David got out of bed and was walking along the roof of the palace. This guy's clearly not a very busy man. Takes a midday nap, just go a little stroll on the palace roof. And while he's there, he looked over the city 
And he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath, who, because God has a sense of humor, turned out to be named Bathsheba. He sent someone to find out who she was. So he looks and he sees a naked woman in a hot tub on top of the roof. And he's looking from his palace balcony saying, who is that? And he sends a servant and he comes back and he goes, look at the answer. That's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, who David knew, and the wife of Uriah. Now, that should have been enough for David to go, okay, I'm going to go back inside with Taylor Swift and move on. And David doesn't decide to do that. And he makes a decision that would follow him for the rest of his life. David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. David, after they sleep together, sends her away. She goes back home. And three weeks later, she sends a message to David, verse 5, that says, I'm pregnant. Uriah is away at battle fighting for King David. And David just slept with his wife and got her pregnant. Not a great scenario. And David does what we're all tempted to do in the midst of sin. He's faced with the choice, I can either confess and come clean, or I can keep going and keep going because I'm afraid of if I confess what would happen, so I'll just keep going and keep going, not knowing it's only gonna make the problem worse and worse. So he comes up with a plan. He decides, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna get Uriah, I'm gonna bring him home, be like, hey, well, I just wanna celebrate you and get him to go home and sleep with his wife. No one will ever know. No one's counting exactly how many weeks and numbers and all that, and so he'll come home, she'll get pregnant, and nobody will ever know. So he brings him home, and this is what he says to David. Then he told Uriah, come home and relax. David sent a gift to Uriah after he left the palace. So Uriah shows up. He's like, hey, I just want to reward you for being such a faithful, faithful guy. Go home and sleep with your wife. And Uriah walks out of the palace, and David sends a gift, and he's told he never got the gift. Uriah slept at the gate of the king. He basically slept outside of the city gates. He wouldn't go home. David calls him in, and he's like, what, what, Uriah, why don't you go home? Uriah says this. What's the matter, David said, verse 10. Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? Uriah said, the ark, ark of the covenant, which basically represented the presence of God, and the armies of Israel are living in tents. Joab, the commander, and my master's men are camping in open fields. How could I go home and wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear, I would never do such a thing. How much did that prick David's heart as he's looking at a man who says I can't go live in comfort while our men are out there fighting for the Lord I appreciate you letting me have the night off but I will not do a thing where I'm going to go home and sleep with her while my men are out in the field the integrity of Uriah and so David decides okay I'm going to have to bring out the big guns he brings out some vintage wine and he says Uriah hang around another night and this is what it says when dear uh We'll stay here today, David told him, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed that night with David, verse 13. David invited him to dinner, and he got him drunk. So we're not told exactly how, or if they're playing some sort of ancient wine pong or something, but eventually Uriah is to the point where David is like, all right, hey, I'm going to spin you around. Head that way. That's where you're going, back to the house. And Uriah still 
stops at the gate and says, I'm gonna be a bodyguard tonight for the king. I refuse to go home and live in luxury and comfort while my men are out in the field. Uriah has more integrity drunk than David does sober at this moment. Now, if I'm God, let me hit pause. If this happens, and think about it, remember, David has just slept with his wife. And now he's trying to cover it up and cover his tracks. And Uriah has so much integrity that he's saying, I refuse to do such a thing. If I'm God in this moment, I hit pause and I go, okay, Uriah, you're now king. David, you're now dead. Because Uriah displays the heart of a man that's much more easy to follow. And much more resembles Christ, frankly. But David decides, man, I can't even get him drunk and go home. And he decides what we all have the decision to make in the midst of sin. Man, I'm looking at pornography. Sure, we cross boundaries. Man, it was just oral sex. Man, it was just a few drinks. Man, it was just a little bit of money. Am I going to keep going? Or am I going to confess? Am I going to come clean or am I going to conceal? And the temptation for all of us in that moment is to think, man, if I come clean, that's going to cost me so much. And David, if he was here, would say, you not coming clean will always cost you more. But he decides, man, I can't just bring it out in the open. And he takes it a step further. And the next morning, he hands an envelope to Uriah. And he says, I want you to take this to the general Joab. And Uriah takes the envelope, says, yes, sir. And he rides off. And Uriah doesn't realize it, but David had written a note to Joab that basically ensured Uriah's death. And Uriah shows up, and he has an envelope, and he's back to the commander, and he says, this is from the king. And Joab, the general of the army, pulls it out and reads it, and he looks at it, and he reads this. Station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest. Then pull back from him so that he will be killed. King David. Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the soldiers came out, Uriah and the Hittite was killed. They put him in the very fiercest area of the battle and then Joab pulled the men back and Uriah was killed. Word is sent back to David and we don't have time to go into all of it but he's basically told Uriah's dead and David thinks coast is clear. So he sends word to Bathsheba and this is what happens next. When Uriah's wife Bathsheba heard that her husband was dead she mourned. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her, brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. Then, eight months later, she gave birth to a son. A son that was related to David, not Uriah. But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. Kills Uriah, he thinks it's over. Man, that was close. What was the time right after that like? as he holds this baby boy that he knows was born through his sin. Eventually, David may have thought he got away with it, but God saw all of it. And God sends a messenger to King David. His name is Nathan the prophet. David's hanging out, and one day he gets a knock at the door. Hey, Nathan the prophet has a word from God for you. 
Now, if I'm David and I know I just killed a guy and had sex with his wife and then I covered up, I mean, think about that. The standard, we think of like Bill Clinton having a scandal in the White House. This would be synonymous with him taking Monica's husband and killing her. I mean, most people wouldn't let David serve in their children's ministry. And yet he's the guy that's writing the Bible. It's astounding. And Nathan shows up and David's gotta be nervous of what is the prophet gonna tell me? And he launches into a story. And David thinks it's just a story. He's telling him something that happened. And so he's all leaned in. And here's what Nathan says. There were two men, Nathan said, in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many of sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the poor man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. I love the detail, Nathan. He's over there, he's just cuddling this little lamb. <laughs> One day, a guest arrived at the home of a rich man. You see the story? Nathan said there's two men. A rich man with all these cattle and sheep. And there's a poor man. He doesn't have much. He's got one lamb. And it was like a child to him. He loved this one lamb. And one day, a guest shows up at the rich man's home. And the rich man says, instead of killing from my own flock or herd, I'm going to take the poor man's lamb. And he killed it. And he prepared it for his guest. And David is listening to this story and feels what all of us would feel of the injustice. And it says, David was furious, verse 5. As the Lord lives, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He just went, Level 10, DEFCOM, over a lamb. He must replay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. And Nathan said to David, looked him in the eye, you are the man. The Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. If that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? You have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, and then he lays into the sentence that that decision would carry out in David's life. And this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised God by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says, because what you have done, I will cause your own household, your family, to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes. He will go to bed with them in public view. You did it in secret. But I will make this happen openly in the sight of all of Israel. And then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, yes, the Lord has forgiven you. You won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the Lord by doing this, your child will die. The little baby that David had been holding was struck by a disease and seven days later he was dead. And that was just the beginning. 
David's family, like it was told, a consequence for your rebellion and your sin is that your family will be in turmoil. And what happens next, we don't have time to go into all of it, but it is so crazy. And David's example as a bad father pops everywhere. What do I mean by that? He has an oldest son, an oldest son named Amnon, who has this weird obsession with his younger half-sister. I mean, it's like creepy and weird looking back, but he's like, man, I just really, I'm just in love, I'm obsessed. And he can't have that relationship, so one day he rapes her. He rapes his half-sister. And it's discovered, and King David does nothing. It says this upset him, but he doesn't do what a good father would do. And that enrages David's other son named Absalom. And Absalom says, if my own father is not going to do something to protect my sister, then I'll do something. And he comes up with a plan, and these are David's two sons fighting over the sister that had been raped by one of them. And Absalom, who is like the most handsome and attractive of all of David's children, says, I'm going to defend my sister if my dad won't. And he kills his brother. And it only gets worse from there. Absalom knows that, man, I just killed this man. So he takes off like he's you know, Simba in The Lion King and goes to live for three years by himself. And eventually David goes, you can come back home. You don't have to be a fugitive. But David still does not example or give us the example of a good father. He says, you can come back home, but I don't want to see you. Absalom comes back home and Absalom continues to go, my father is a failure as a dad. He does not deserve to be king for the actions he has taken. So he begins to recruit an army, and Absalom puts together this army. And this army all of a sudden becomes so powerful that Absalom goes, man, we're going to take on the city. And he begins to march and declare civil war against King David, his own father. And David doesn't want Jerusalem to be burned, so he goes, all right, I'm going to get all my posse, and we're going to go out and go basically live in the wilderness until we kind of assemble our troops and get things ready. And David still loved Absalom. And Absalom finds himself sitting in the palace, and he's like, man, that's pretty nice. I mean, look at this chair. This is great. And they got these little drinks with the umbrellas in them, and I'm king. He declares himself king. And then his advisor tells him to do something that's further fulfillment of this prophecy. He says, you know what you should do? You should really show the people. And this is like my own translation. But basically, you should really show the people that you're showing the middle finger to your dad, and you should have sex on the roof with his concubines. So they set up a tent on the roof of the White House, and Absalom goes in and has sex with David's concubines to show them, hey, there is no reconciliation that is going to take place. I mean, think about that. It's hard to sit down at the Thanksgiving table after you've gone through that. <laughs> and Absalom decides even this is not enough. And he marches out in the wilderness to go find David and kill his father. And King David is heartbroken over this. He doesn't want Absalom to die, but they go to war and Absalom dies in the process. David would lose four children as a result of his decision to sleep with Bathsheba. Four. David is reinstated as king and he goes back and another son named Adonijah makes an attempt at the throne. I mean, over and over and over. And David does not act like a good, he was a failure as a father to his children. Incredible hero on the war, battlefield, and a failure at home. And then, on his own deathbed, in 1 Kings chapter 2, which we don't have time to go in, David is dying, and he looks at Solomon, who's now the new king, and he says, I want you to do something. And he says, there's two men who I don't want you to let live to have gray hair and go to the grave in peace. I mean, he's like a, like 
a mob boss dying and saying, hey, you know what to do, take him out. That's what he does. That's, what he, that's literally what he does. He doesn't even say kill him. He's like, you know, he literally says, you know what to do. He's like, you know, not to let him go in peace to the grave. <clears throat> that's my best mob boss. And David, over and over at every turn, I mean, he had some incredible triumphs and incredible mountaintops and incredible valleys. And so what does all of this have to do with us? And why would Matthew go out of his way to highlight the decision that had so much destruction in David's life? There's two takeaways that I really want to walk through very quickly as we think about this text. There's two very simple things that are so applicable and relevant to you and I's life. One of them is about us, in particular sin, and the other one is about God. And the first one is this, very simply, that sin always has consequences. Sin always has consequences. The temptation in that moment is you're going, man, it's just, it's just sex one time. It's just not that big of a deal. It's just pornography one time. It's just one last time. It's just, one, it's, just, it's just crossing boundaries a little bit physically. It's just taking a little bit financially and kind of cutting the corners here and there. And David would say, sin always has consequences. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. The payment you get for sin every time, and I get for sin every single time, is death. How can that make sense? You ever read that verse and you're like, death? Like if I you know, steal something, I'm going to explode or I'm going to die? How does that bring death? Well, David's own story shows us sin always brings death, not just physically, but death in emotional ways, spiritual ways. David's sin led to the death of his family. Some of you this week is going to be really painful because Thanksgiving and Christmas and holidays, they bring up all the fracturedness in your family, the brokenness because of your parents' divorce that was a result of sin that led to the death of their marriage, that led to the death of your relationship with your dad, that sin ultimately and always brings about and kills things that it touches. Some of your faith, you know, you went through college and you used to have a faith and you were in high school and you kind of like walked with God and then you went through this season where you just walked away from him. And it wasn't that God changed, it's that you just continued to go down a path with other people. And you went from, man, I'm worshiping on the weekends, so I'm a weekend warrior, and I don't even know if I believe in God anymore. And it led to the death of your relationship with God. And David would say sin always has consequences. It did then, it does now, it can lead to the death of your freedom. I and mean, that's what addiction is. That I... I want to be free in order to do whatever I want, whenever I want. And all of a sudden, now I'm not free. I can't go this long without drinking. I can't go this long without pornography. I can't go this long without a hookup. Because it led to the death of your freedom. And David would say, it always brings about death. And it doesn't come in the form of something that you can always tell. It just looks like, man, this isn't that big of a deal. And it's just kind of one subtle look. And all of a sudden, step by step, brings destruction. In Alaska, there's a common way that Eskimos will kill wolves, and they do so in order to keep wolves away from just either camping ground or for whatever reason. And the way that they do it is they take a knife, and they go to the shore, and they find a seal, and they stab the seal, and they get the blood of the seal on that knife. And then they take the knife, and they go over to the snow, and they roll it in the snow, and then they repeat the process and repeat the process until eventually they have a huge seal blood popsicle with a knife inside of it. They take that popsicle knife, and they go and they put it in the snow. And wolves will smell the scent of that blood. 
And Eskimos will be relatively close to the popsicle, but the wolves don't care because they care only about the scent of that blood. They care only about that thing. And then the wolves will go up to that blood popsicle with a knife on the inside of it, and they'll start to lick it, and they'll start to lick it, and they'll start to lick it. And eventually, all of the snow or the seal blood moves away, and the wolf continues to lick, and it's licking the knife. And it cuts its mouth open until it bleeds out, and it dies. And once it, it doesn't even realize, it's gone past the point of no return. And I think if David was here, he would say, the best option you have and I have is at every turn, wherever you're at, you think you're too far gone, you're not too far gone, but the best cure that you have is doing what David did eventually, coming clean and confessing. James 5, 16 says, by confessing, we bring healing into our life. Galatians 6 says that whatever a man sows, he will reap. That God is not mocked. And you cannot live a certain way, date a certain way, feed your mind certain thoughts, certain images, certain things, and it not impact who you are. I wish that as a pastor I could say that this is something that I don't have to struggle with and have to battle with anymore. Like, man, I'm happily married, I've moved on, that, you know, I, I don't ever have lustful thoughts, I don't ever struggle with pride or anger or just uh, temptation in general, but I can't. That I every day have a choice. If I find myself still tempted with, man, there's a beautiful girl that walks by who bends over to pick something up or somebody on Instagram that clicks something. And I know that, man, I just want to see who they are because it kind of looks like there's cleavage in their profile picture. In that moment, I have a choice to either say, I need to confess this and share with my own small group guys, hey, just this happened. I'm having images that are going through my mind or whatever the struggle is. I have a choice. Am I going to bring this out in the light or am I going to try to carry it on my own? And David would say, as long as you and I try to carry it on our own, we live it in secrecy. It's not going away. And I have to make that choice every single day. And I wish, you know, I was like nine years happily married. You don't struggle with that stuff anymore. It's just not the truth. And King David, who wrote so much of the Bible, if nothing else, testifies to that. And we heal by bringing it into the light. My son, we went on a camp out a few weeks ago, and he came back, and he had all these different stickers that were in his feet. And... He had splinters, basically, as a result of it, and they were causing little infections. And as a five-year-old, you don't really understand that, hey, I need to take these tweezers and pull those out. Because in his mind, he's just like, oh, I'm okay. I can live the rest of my life without these things. It'll be fine. But in my mind, I know it's not going to get better until you get it out. And the same is true with sin, that it doesn't get better in your life and in my life until it gets out. And God's not up there being like, man, own up, because I just want you to be embarrassed. He's going, I care about what sin does to you and to me, and I want you to experience healing. So sin always has consequences. And then the second thing, very simply, is that God always keeps his covenants. This ultimately is a story about God. I mean, if you're reading this story and you go, why did God not strike him with lightning? I mean, the number of things that David does that other kings didn't do that were removed for. I mean, Saul, you know why Saul was removed as king? He took a census, and he didn't kill somebody. David kills somebody and sleeps after he sleeps with his wife. I mean, you would think that God would be up there and be like, okay, we're going to move. David gives him every reason in the world to say, I'm actually not going to keep that covenant with you. 
I remember being in seminary, and it's really messing with me. Because you read the Old Testament, and, and we don't have time to go into these stories, but like Hezekiah, he like lights basically a candle, and God removes him from authority or brings consequence. There's just men who do things where you're like, why would God say, deal breaker, but David does the worst of anybody in the family line of Jesus, and he's your boy? And it wasn't until recently I realized... Why? Because God keeps his covenants. It wasn't about David. God had made an, un, you know what a covenant is? It's an unconditional promise that regardless of what you do, I'm going to keep my promise. Now, does that mean sin doesn't have consequences? No, sin always has consequences. You can have sex with her. That doesn't mean you're gonna to go to hell. It may mean you get herpes, but you're not going to hell if you are in the covenant family of God. Because people say, oh man, there's gonna be consequences or does he remove, no. You can murder someone and it doesn't mean you're necessarily going to hell, you're probably going to jail, but if you're in Christ, which would be an unusual behavior for a follower of Jesus, but God always keeps his covenant and Matthew is highlighting the point. The relationship you and I have been invited to with God has nothing to do with how you behave. We no longer approach him based on that. It has everything to do with the covenant God has entered into with us. The unconditional promise. What is the unconditional promise? Whosoever, John 3, 16, the most famous verse in the room, anybody probably knows. Whoever believes in Jesus will not perish but have eternal life. Not whoever behaves for Jesus will not perish but have eternal life. The moment... Jesus taught, his followers taught, the church has always taught. When you believe, you accept Jesus on the cross, died for your sin, everything, stuff you don't even know you're gonna do in March of 2023, paid for. When you accept Jesus, you on the cross, you paid for me. You died in my place. And you rose again as payment for my sin. Boom, you're in the covenant family of God. And our God keeps his covenant. A covenant is an unconditional promise. And the reason why David was not removed from the throne despite failure after failure is God keeps his promises. And he has promised to you and I in Christ there is nothing you can do that would make him remove you from the covenant of God or the family of God. And there's nothing you could not do that would keep you out of it if you receive and accept Jesus' payment on the cross for you. What do I mean by covenant contract? A contract is something where it's like, basically, if you do this, then I'll do that. A contract is what I have with AT&T, where if I could get a better deal, better service, I would move very quickly to Verizon or whatever other service. That's contract. A covenant is akin to marriage. It's an unconditional promise. Next week is my wife and I's nine-year anniversary. Nine years ago, almost to the day. Yeah, thank you for that. Thank you. Golf clap for that. Nine years ago, almost to the day, we stood at an altar, her in a white dress, me in a black suit, and said, I promise unconditionally to love you until death do we part. God has entered into a covenant with anyone who will simply accept Jesus. And the message of David, and the reason Matthew, as he's writing out, and David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been another man's wife is to highlight our God keeps his promises and the behavior of the people who know him and walk with him has nothing to do 
with the faithfulness of God. He is faithful when they are not. He is a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. And Matthew includes to point that all of these men are sinners that led to a savior. Their lives point not to the heroics of themselves, but their desperate need for a savior. That's the point in every turn of David's story. And if David was here, he'd say, it's not about me, it's about Jesus. If Rahab was here, she would say, it's not about me, it's about Jesus. And it all points, and was meant to point, to him. Finally, David models something that's really, really important. Because some of you guys in the room, you feel like, man, I, you're, you're in an affair. You never told anybody that, but you, you've had one. Or you're in the middle of one. There's an abortion that you don't even really want to have, but someone was a part of that, and they kind of make it seem like it's not that big of a deal, or it's a morning after pill, and you know, who cares? And it'd be worse to bring the child into this, and you made a decision, and it's haunted you every day since then. And you carry around a guilt and a shame. Maybe there's a current struggle that you candidly, you think you're going to die with. You think you're going to bring it to the grave. You think there's no option but to bring it to the grave. You think if I brought it into the light like David felt, there's no way. If, I mean, if the confession consequences are going to be way worse than if I just keep going. And David would invite you. You can be free. You can experience healing. You can experience soul forgiveness. Washed in his words, white as snow, by bringing that to God. Right after he committed adultery with Bathsheba, he says in Psalm 51, he writes, and I'm landing the plane right here, he writes something incredibly beautiful. Maybe the night after Nathan said, you are the man. Psalm 51 starts like this. A Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. I know my transgressions, David said. My sin is always in front of me. I know I am messed up. But I will be clean. Wash me, God, and I will be whiter than snow. You do not delight in sacrifice or in good deeds or in church attendance or in reading my Bible or in giving to church. You don't delight in those things or I would give it. Those are not the things that God wants. The sacrifice of God is a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart. God, you will not despise. And David cries out to God, I am broken. Will you forgive me? If there was something I could do that would earn it, I would do it, but there isn't. Will you forgive me? And if you will follow in David's steps tonight, will you will experience rushing in is the forgiveness of God and your life doesn't have to be defined by those things. And if you've trusted in Jesus, no matter where you are in the spectrum for the rest of your life, you can rest confidently where you're gonna spend eternity with God because you're part of the covenant family and our God keeps his covenants, his promise, his unconditional promise to those who are in Jesus. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for every person here and I pray that you would allow the story of David, the truth that all of us are broken and in need of a savior to pierce through anyone who has never heard, believed, accepted that. And you would welcome them into the covenant relationship that you have invited everyone who's ever lived into. And that you would pierce through people who believe lies right now. They feel like 
They're overwhelmed with shame and guilt. That your forgiveness would flood their hearts and their minds and bring freedom and peace. A freedom and peace that only you can give. We worship you in song.